As we open up our Bibles this morning, we are stepping back into the courtroom for the final time as we rack up, wrap up John chapter 5. It's been very much like a trial courtroom scene that we've been looking at between Jesus and the religious leaders. And when I think about that, the, the courtroom is the place where I spent a lot of my time earlier in my life wanting to be, studying law, wanting to be one of the lawyers standing up in the courtroom, making the arguments, making the case, or to be the judge sitting up there listening to the arguments, deciding the case. But one thing that I never wanted to be in the courtroom was the defendant. That was never like, oh man, that'd be really cool to be, to be the defendant in court, to be the person on trial. It's hard for me to think of an experience that'd be a little more intense than that. Sitting there, listening to people arguing about the future of your life. Looking over at those 12 jurors sitting in that box, wondering, what are they thinking? What, what do they think when they look at me? What are they thinking about what this guy's saying? What, what are they going to decide? And, and especially, there's nothing I can think of as more nerve-wracking than that moment at the end when everybody is standing and you, as the defendant, are waiting for those next words that are going to decide your future. Guilty or not guilty. And just the pause, like, you know, even they, they always play it up in the, you know, the TV shows and the, the, the movies, right? That pause, we have the verdict, and then there's that silence. What would it be like to be the person sitting there waiting to hear those words that are going to tell you whether you're, you're free to go or whether you're going to jail or what the future is going to hold for you? And what we see here with Jesus is he makes this argument and he turns this whole situation on its head where he looks at these religious leaders and he says, okay, you're trying to put me on trial. And he flips it to where by the end he says, that's not how it works. You don't put me on trial because I am the judge. And he flips it on them and by the end he's the one making the accusation. And when we think of that scene of being the defendant, of standing there before the judge, it's really not a hypothetical. If you're in this room, if you can hear my voice this morning, the reality is someday you are going to stand before Jesus Christ and he will be on the throne and he will be on the judgment seat and that will be the most consequential moment of your existence when you stand before him. And I think it's right for us to have a sense of seriousness when we think about that topic. But the good news is, when we look at what the Bible has to say, Jesus has already told us everything we need to be 100% ready for that moment. And I hope the seriousness of that moment makes us want to be ready. And I hope what we listen to what Jesus is saying helps us to be ready for that day. And so I want you to take your Bibles and open them up to John chapter 5. Open up to John chapter 5, and today we're going to look at verses 31 through the end of the chapter. And just to review, since we've been uh, starting to go through this now for a few different weeks, we, we, it starts off with a miracle. Jesus heals the man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, and boom, he's up and walking. This bold, miraculous demonstration of Jesus' power. But then the conflict begins because Jesus, he did it on the Sabbath day. And to the Pharisees, that was a big no-no. And so now that there's this argument, there's this confrontation. And Jesus says this, if you're there in John, look back at verse 17 for now. And Jesus answered them, 
My Father is working until now, and I am working. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago, where Jesus there, he's not just saying God is my Father. He's saying, hey, just like God kind of works on the Sabbath by, you know, upholding the universe and all of that, I'm working too, because I am equal with God. And that's what they understood. The next verse says that's why even more they wanted to kill Jesus, because they understood that he was making himself equal with God. And then we looked at Jesus' response, and we see so clearly he, he doesn't back down. He doubles down. And he says, no, you're exactly right. I'm not independent of God. I'm not some rival deity, but I am, as his son, equal to God. And I show that because I do the same things God does. And he went on to explain, I give life, and I have the authority to judge. And that all starts in verse 17 where he says, Jesus answered them, which even is the introduction of very courtroom-like language to this passage. And that's what brings us to our section, starting in verse 31, where Jesus now has given his opening argument. And in verse 31, he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Which is just basically a simple legal concept that, hey, don't just take my word for it. Just like in the Old Testament, it says, hey, you can't convict somebody except for the by the word of multiple witnesses, he's saying, hey, just my word, yeah, it's, it's not enough to prove my point. So let me start calling my witnesses to the stand. And then he gives four witnesses, and that's what we want to look at today. The four witnesses that Jesus gives. In verse 32, he says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, what, what is he talking about there? I think the best way to understand that is not to look forward at what he's about to say, but to look back when he's been talking about his father. And that's going to be kind of his biggest witness is his father. And he's going to come back to that a little bit later. So we will too. But I want us to start. The first witness I want to look at is really in verses 33 to 35. So look especially at those, verses 33 to 35, where it says, You sent to John, referring to uh, the person we know as John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the witness that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Refers back to John the Baptist. And notice what he says there in verse 33. It says that he bore witness to the truth. He's saying, hey, that that guy, remember him? He was saying the right thing. You, You should have listened him. And so since many of you weren't here when we started going through the Gospel of John back in last November, which now feels like, you know, four years ago, back in 2019, remember those days? When we started going through this, let's go back briefly to John chapter 1. And what did John the Baptist say? What was his message? What was his message? And we see a great summary of it there in John 1 verse 29. Where the next day he, talking about John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was his message. Hey, this guy right here, he's the Lamb of God. He is the solution to sin. And he goes on, look at verse 34, saying, I I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And what's the context of this? Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God. He was claiming to be equal with God. And he's like, John the Baptist already told you that. 
He already told you that I'm the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world and that I am the Son of God. And we need to listen. I mean, it says there in, in our passage that he's like, hey, I've got better witnesses than just another human, but I'm saying these things to you that you may be saved. And it's the same message that people need to hear today to be saved. And so let's put this down. Let's summarize the witness of John the Baptist here in point number one and say, embrace that you are a sinner and Christ is the Savior. That's what John the Baptist was trying to tell people. And that's what Jesus is saying, hey, you, you need to listen to what he was saying. He's saying, I'm the Lamb of God who can take care of the sin problem. And there's two aspects of that. First, embracing that you are a sinner. I mean, that's something that John, he, he kind of made clear. John the Baptist was a preacher that didn't pull any punches. Uh, you know, he wasn't Mr. Warm and Fuzzy uh, preacher. I mean, when people would come out, when the religious leaders would come out and say, hey, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, that's not really something you see on YouTube clips of preachers today, right? But he, one of his favorite words was this word repent. And he talks about people, you know, you bear fruits of repentance. And you might think, oh, that's a church word or, you know, a Bible word. It's a real simple meaning. It just means to turn. John was trying to tell people, hey, you need to turn around. And that was even what his baptism represented. It was a baptism of repentance. People saying, I, I, am, I am part of the problem. I am a sinner, and I need to turn from that. But always the question when you think, well, turn, where, what am I turning to? And that's what he makes clear. We're turning to Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That Jesus, he's the one who takes away our sin. Lamb has this idea of a sacrifice. You know, even going back to the Passover, where the, the Passover lamb would be sacrificed, the blood was put on the doorposts, and the, the angel of death passed over the houses of the Israelites. Right? And it's, that, that's the picture for us, that when the blood of Christ is put on us through faith in Christ, the wrath of God passes over us. That is the forgiveness for our sins. He paid the price for your sins, for my sins, on the cross. And also, Jesus is the one that takes away our sin in the sense that he sets us free. He sets us free to live a different life. And that's what John was trying to point people to. Hey, you have a problem, and the solution is you've got to turn from your sin and put your trust in Christ, who can free you from the penalty of your sin and the power of your sin. Embrace that you are a sinner, but hey, good news, everybody. The Savior's right here. You could believe in him. Now, the most interesting phrase, I think, of our passage in, in, in John 5 there is in verse 35, where Jesus says that John was a burning and shining lamp. I mean, he, he's, he's giving props to John the Baptist. This, this guy was speaking the truth. He was saying good stuff. And then he says, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. You get this sense that there was some level of interest and acceptance of what John was saying, but it didn't kind of go all the way. because They were only rejoicing in a, for a while in this message. And you understand, John the Baptist, he was a very interesting person who got a ton of attention from the culture around him. I mean, he was somewhat of a, you know, he went viral, I guess you could say, whatever that looked like 2,000 years ago. But you got crowds of people going out into the wilderness to see him and to see what's up, see, see what he is saying. And you go out there and you see this guy that's, he wasn't dressed like 
the normal person. He wasn't saying what the normal person was saying. There hadn't been a prophet in the land of Israel for 400 years. So nobody alive had actually seen a prophet before. And they're going out there. And there were probably some things that people liked. I mean, he was telling the religious leaders what, what, what. And when he called them a brood of vipers, there were probably a lot of people being like, yeah, I've been waiting to say that my whole life to those clowns, right? People liked that. And he was rebuking Roman soldiers saying, hey, you need to turn from, from your sin. I bet people liked that. He, he was calling out the king for his sin. And I bet people liked that. And clearly there were people that fully embraced John the Baptist's message, that were baptized, that eventually became followers of Christ. But I bet there were a lot of people that once he stopped talking about the religious leaders and the Romans and the king, and he started talking about them, they didn't like his message so much anymore. They, they didn't mind him calling other people out, but when he started calling them out, hmm, not so much. I think there's so many people even today that when it's just the Bible or church or the message of Christianity, they're, they're interested in it, right? I mean, I'm not wearing camel's hair and eating locusts up here, but uh, there, there might be other things that draw people to church. Think, you know, hey, maybe that's a, a good environment for, for me and for my kids, you know, good family values. Maybe that'll help us out, right? Or maybe this particular church kind of lines up with me and my political agenda. Or, you know, hey, there's some cool people. It seems like a fun place. Whatever it might be, there's lots of things driving people to be interested in the church, interested in what the Bible has to say. But at the end of the day, what about this core message? It's the message that God is trying to say to every single person is, you're a sinner. But there is a Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And I don't, looking out of this room, I don't know why all of you are here today, or if you're sitting in the overflow or watching online. But the bottom line is, if you have not turned from your sin and admitted your sin and embraced, well, God is completely taking care of the problem through Jesus Christ, then you're not ready for the day that you're going to stand before Christ. And there's nothing more important than being ready for that. Hebrews says, it's appointed to man once to die, and then comes the judgment. And on one level, that is very serious. But on the other level, it's not like, oh man, guys, we got a problem. Let's brainstorm and figure out what the solution is. John told us the solution. Jesus is telling us the solution. Behold the Lamb of God. Jesus has taken our sin. He has died on the cross. He has risen again. Anybody in this room who turns from their sin and puts their faith in Christ is instantly forgiven and ready for that day when we will see Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter, you know, if we're kind of interested in one of the, you know, ancillary aspects of Christianity or church. What about that core message? And there's a flip side to all this, because I know I'm talking to a room where a lot of you are like, amen, preach it. I turn from my sin, put my faith in Christ, I'm ready to go. Well, it also affects then, okay, how we share the gospel with other people. And ultimately, it's going to come down to that core message. I grew up, I was, kind of split my life up over different states here in America. I was born in Southern California, but then spent most of my years growing up in San Antonio, Texas. And uh, while I was there, one thing that, you know, even when we'd go back and visit family in, 
in California that we would always do, and I even, you heard me talk about it last week when I was saying my family went on vacation. I mean, whenever it's an option, first stop is in an out burger for us, right? That's just the way it's always been, and I'll just be real with you, that's the way it's always going to be. Um, and so living in Texas, I kind of took it upon myself as a kid, as a high school student, to be something of an in-and-out evangelist, right? I was trying to let everybody the, you know the good news of a double-double, animal style. And uh, so I, you know, I would come back from summer vacation with the stickers, put it on my guitar case, put it on the back of my car, try to tell everybody. And now there's in-and-outs all over Texas. So I like to think of myself even as somewhat of an in-and-out John the Baptist, preparing the way um, before it went. But even all the things that I would try to tell somebody, oh, you know, it's cool. They put Bible verses at the bottom of the cups and on, like, the, the burger bags. Or, you know, there's this secret menu, and you can get these different things. At the end of the day, if they don't like burgers, and specifically if they don't like the burgers there, they're not going to like it. Because that's literally the only entree on the menu, right? And it doesn't matter if you think the Bible verses are cool or you like the chocolate shake. If you don't like the burger, you're just not going to like in and out And when we come to sharing our faith, right, there's so many things we might try to emphasize to other people. You know, whether it is, hey, the kind of the the strong environment of a church and the community that that can bring. And there's so many benefits of Christianity, right? But at the end of the day, if the person doesn't embrace this core message, they're not going to like Christianity. Because Christianity is a message about we're a sinner and Jesus is the Savior, and so even as we think about how we present the gospel, hey, I'm all for, hey, we, we should be kind, winsome people, you know, winning people over with our love and our, our kindness and, and good works. But at the end of the day, if we aren't getting to that central message and they aren't embracing that central message, what are we doing here? Not evangelism, right? That message has to be at the center. And even I'd encourage you, ultimately, that's why we pray that God opens people's eyes. Because whatever we highlight to them, if they're not going to embrace the message that, Yes, I'm a sinner, but Jesus is the Savior. Praise God. That's what we need people to do. And that's the message that John shared, and it's still relevant today. Jesus says, I'm saying these things to you that you may be saved. And that's the same message I've got today. That's the same message all of us should have. Hey, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and I'm saying this to you that you may be saved, so that you might be ready for when you stand before Christ. Let's move on to the second witness. And this one we'll go through quickly. But verse 36 says, The testimony that I have is greater than John. Right? Jesus is saying, hey, I'm just getting started with John the Baptist. He was, he was human. I've got more. I've got better witnesses. And then he introduces the second one. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. He's saying, witness number two is the works that I'm doing. And he's referring to his miracles. And remember the context. This is a conversation that happened right after a miracle. Jesus healed the man who had been lame for 38 years. And that, was, that wasn't like, oh, cool trick. Like that was a genuine, bona fide act of God. This guy hadn't walked in 38 years, and immediately he's up and walking. I don't know if you've ever known someone who is gotten seriously injured or maybe you've probably seen something on TV or a movie or something where someone's injured and they can't walk, but you know, there's hope and they start trying to walk again. Think about that process. It is a long, intense process as people learn to walk again. You, know, you see people there like on those, those bars, right, straining with everything they've got just to take one step. 
But Jesus, when he speaks the word, boom, this guy whose muscles had you know, atrophied decades ago is instantly able to get up, pick up his mat, mat, his mat third time's the charm, and, and walk. Instantly in a moment. That's, that's a miracle. And Jesus is pointing to that and saying, what does that mean? And that's a good question. And I want us just for a moment to think about what is the purpose of miracles in the Bible? Is it to do something cool? Is it to help somebody out? Is it to prove the existence of God? Not really. One thing you've got to remember is everybody we're reading about in the Bible already assumed the existence of God. No, miracles throughout Scripture were meant to authenticate the messenger. That people would come along and they would do these miracles to prove what I'm saying is from God. And so let's write that down for point number two. See how miracles authenticate the messenger. In this case, specifically, Jesus. But when you think about who does miracles in scriptures, and if you read this book from cover to cover, you'll probably notice miracles actually aren't as common as you might think they are. Who does miracles? Well, clearly we see Jesus doing miracles, but other than that, we see the main groups being, you've got the prophets, and you've got the apostles. And, and, And what did all of those people have in common? They had a message. They were sharing a message, and the miracles were a means to prove the message I'm giving you is from God. This isn't my idea. It's God's. Like even going back to Genesis, we think of someone like Abraham, and we see God doing amazing things, but we don't see Abraham standing up and saying, hey, look at me, look at this sign that I'm doing. We, we see that even starting kind of with, with Moses. And why does it start? Well, Exodus chapter 4, when he's there at the burning bush, you know, his first objection is, hey, God, uh, nobody's going to listen to me. They're just going to think I'm some wacko from the wilderness. What, what, what's going to make them listen to me? And God says, I'm going to give you signs. Throw your staff down. It's going to turn into a stake. Put your hand in your cloak. It's going to come out leprous. These ten plagues that I'm going to do through you are going to prove that you are my messenger and that your message is from me. And now that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, the works that I'm doing are proving that I am from God and that the words that I'm saying to you are true. Even Nicodemus got that back in John chapter 3. He says, hey, we know. Nobody can do what you're doing unless they come from God. And Jesus is saying, that's God's stamp of approval, not just on me, but on my message. And what is my message? I am equal with God. I am the son of God. And you should listen to that because did you see what I just did? That's only something that I can do through the power of God and his stamp of approval on my message. And so I'm realizing, hey, in in this room this morning, I bet there's some of you that even this whole, well, I'm not so sure about the Bible. And I'm not so sure about church. And I'm not so sure about, you know, what you're saying about standing before Christ someday. I'm not quite sure what I think about all that. And hey, that's, you probably have some very fair questions. And so what I would encourage you to do, if you're, if you're in that camp, is look at the signs that Jesus did. And I would just even point you to one, the ultimate sign that Jesus did. He rose from the dead. That was the ultimate stamp of approval from God saying, everything this guy said Everything this guy did was true. And what did he say? He said he was the son of God. What did he say he was doing? He was going to die on the cross for our sins. All of that is legit because Jesus rose from the dead. And so if 
if you're wondering about all this, I'd encourage you, go do some homework. Go do some genuine research on that question. Did Jesus really rise from the dead, or is that just a made-up story? Because if it's a made-up story, you're free to not come back next Sunday, and you can drive by and have pity on all of us for wasting our time. But if it did happen, and research it, it did happen, then everything that Jesus said and everything that he did was true, and it deserves our attention, and it deserves our trust. Jesus proved it through the works that he did. Let's look now at the last two witnesses. So we've seen John the Baptist, witness number one. Next witness, the works that Jesus is doing. And now he gets to two more that are kind of intertwined, so I want us to deal with them somewhat together. But we already looked at verse 32, and that's referring to the Father, and Jesus comes back to that in verse 37. He says, And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. He says the next witness is, is the Father, but instantly we see how the witness of the Father is tied to the witness number four, the Scriptures. They're bearing witness together. And he says there, his voice you have never heard. Now a lot of people, they think, well wait, when Jesus was baptized, the Father spoke and he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And they think, well this is a reference to that. I'm not so convinced that that's what this is referring to. I'll just give you a couple reasons. One, John the Baptist never refers to that earlier when he talks about Jesus' baptism. Like he, and second, we don't know that Jesus' baptism was this big public spectacle that all these people witnessed and heard. So I think he's really saying to the people he's talking to, you have never heard the voice of the Father, and you have never seen his form. That wouldn't be things that the average Jewish person would have expected to do. But then the zinger really comes when he says, and you don't have his word in your heart. He's saying, hey, the way that you have to know the Father is his word, and clearly you don't know that, because if you knew the Father, if you knew his word, you would listen to me. But you're not listening to me. And so that shows Jesus saying that you don't really know the Father and that you don't really know the Scriptures. So I want us to talk about what he says about both of those topics, and I want us to start with the Scriptures, because that's what he goes on to say in verse 39. He says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now when Jesus says to these guys, you search the scriptures, that was an understatement. I mean, it keeps referring to the Jews here. And that's probably not referring to every Jewish person at the time. John uses that word a lot to talk about really the religious leaders. That's who Jesus is talking to here. And when he's saying you search the scriptures, these guys knew the scriptures. When he's talking about Moses, probably most of the people he's talking to could recite from memory every word that Moses wrote down in the Bible. They could probably recite the first five books of Scripture. And even to this day, I mean, this is what they say is the high calling of, uh, you know, what they would consider real Jewish men. If you look at the Orthodox Jewish people, even in the land of Israel today, every election that comes up, those Orthodox parties, what's like their biggest demand? Well, hey, we still have to be exempt from military service. 
which is kind of a big deal in Israel when you're in a small country that's surrounded by a bunch of other countries that wish you didn't exist. Military service is a big deal. But they're saying, hey, we should be exempt from that because as Orthodox Jews, we need to be spending all of our time studying the Torah. That's what we have to spend all of our time doing. And that's the same thought that the Pharisees had. That's what they spent all of their time doing. So when Jesus is saying, you search the scriptures, he's not saying, oh, yeah, I know you guys have your weekly Bible studies. No, this is all day, every day, what they are doing. You're not going to find people who knew the scriptures better, who could recite them more, who could point you to chapter and verse. But Jesus is saying, guys, you've officially missed the whole point. You search the scriptures, but the whole point of the law, the prophets, the writings, what we call the Old Testament is it was all pointing to me. And I am standing now right in front of you and you've missed it. You have missed the point. Point number three, we want to make sure we don't do the same thing that they did. Don't skip Jesus in the scriptures. Don't skip Jesus in the scriptures. Jesus is saying it's all pointing to me. And maybe just write this reference down. Luke 24, 25 to 27. This is a, something that happened after Jesus rose from the dead. He, he comes along two people that were followers of Christ, but they, they don't recognize that it's Jesus. And he's like, hey, why the long face? Why so gloomy? And they're like, uh, where have you been? Haven't you heard about Jesus? He was crucified. This is bad stuff. And after Jesus listens to him, he, he, he says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. Didn't you know that the Christ was going to suffer? And then it says, beginning with Moses and looking at the prophets, it was going through the Old Testament, Jesus proved to them that the Messiah would, would suffer. He opened up his Old Testament and preached the gospel to them and said, guys, you should have known all of this, that this was referring to me, that this was pointing to the Messiah, and that the Messiah was going to suffer. It says, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And that's even a challenge if you're in a life group or you go through those application questions. That's one of the questions. Hey, how would you open up the Old Testament and point somebody to Christ? Jesus did it. It's something we should be able to do. But my concern is that so many people have some sort of connection with this book, but they miss the point of what it's trying to say. They miss the point of what it's all about. And now Jesus could take for granted with his audience that they searched the scriptures. They, they knew it. When I'm talking in modern day America, I don't feel like I can take that for granted. Because I'm looking out at a room of people and I'm sure a good chunk of this room, you're not really searching the scriptures. And that's where I'd say very different symptom, same disease. You also are missing the point of the scriptures. Because many people, they don't read the Bible because they think, ah, you know, it's some old book with information or, you know, I'm not a nerd, so I'm not going to study it. Or they think, ah, oh, you know, it's just this long list of do's and don'ts and I'm not really into that. And if, that, if, if that's what you think the Bible is, you're missing the point. This is a book that points us to the Savior. When we look at this, we're not just understanding a book, we're getting to know a person. It is pointing us to Jesus Christ. And I'm concerned as a pastor, so many people that just let this collect dust on their shelves, they're missing out on Jesus. They're not just missing out on some information or, oh, well, you might not know the rules as well as the next guy. That's not what it's about. It's about Jesus Christ. And that's what should motivate us to get into this book. But again, I think a lot of people are into the Bible because of something they think they can get out of it. 
They think, well, this will benefit me somehow. This will make me a better, a better person. Or a lot of people, you know, they just dig into it because, you know, they can know more. They do better at Bible trivia when their family plays that. And so, all right, you know, and that's not really what it is. Usually it's, well, I just want to come across as very knowledgeable and scholarly to other people. And if that's why you're digging into the word, you're also missing the point. It's not just, well, hey, here's some nuggets to help your family be better. Or, hey, here's, you know, understand this first so you can really impress people with how much you know about theology. It's pointing us to Christ. And yes, will the Bible give us knowledge? Absolutely. Will it give us moral direction? Absolutely. But it will give us those things through Christ. If we try to get those things from Scripture without Christ, that's bad news. I mean, think of how many people you've heard of that have had some low experience in life. Maybe even, you know, committed suicide or tried to commit suicide. And as they're there, as low as they can possibly get, they pick up this book and start reading. As a pastor, I come across those people that their life has fallen apart, so they open this book. And I see one of two things happen. I see some people that are like, all right, this book is going to tell me what I need to know and what I need to do. And when I do that, I'll get my life back together. Guess how many times I've seen that work? This many times. Zero. It never works. But then I come across people that they start reading this book at that low point in their life, and you know what they see? They see a person. They see Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for their sins. And they realize, hey, all those things I need to go start doing, I can't do it. I'm a slave to my sin, but this Jesus, he can set me free from it. And when I see people get that, and we're cooking with gas now, right? Like, this is good stuff. There is hope for the future. What do you see when you look at this book? It's not about just knowing certain facts. It's not about just doing certain things. It's about knowing Jesus Christ. And when we know Jesus, that's when we'll know the right things and do the right things. I'm certainly not trying to minimize the commands of Scripture. We, we need to take those seriously. But we can only do those commands when we've gone through Jesus Christ to find salvation for our souls. Let's not miss the point of Scripture. It's not about anything else. It's about pointing us to Christ who is a person who will transform our lives. And when we get that, then this word becomes just a message of life to us, showing us the way to go. Because we have put our faith in Christ. But this, this book, this, these scriptures even, they flow from a person. They come from the Father. And again, you see, even as he's talking about the witness of the Father and the witness of the scriptures, it kind of keeps going back and forth. Talking about the Father, talking about the, the, the scriptures. And we, we left off there in verse 41. Let's pick it up in verse 42, because he kind of comes back to the Father. Verse 42, and really now he's getting to the very root of the issue. He, he's he's bottom, lining, bottom lining it for him. For I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Hey, religious leaders, here's the bottom line. You don't even really love God. You do all this religious stuff, but it's not about him. And then verse 43 is actually prophetic. He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And we could point to historical examples after Christ of figures coming and claiming to be the Messiah and droves of people following them, just like Jesus said that they would. And then really, the, the very core of it in verse 44 how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? 
He's saying, listen, the real problem here is you're living for yourself and what everybody else thinks about you instead of living for God. That, that was the core of his message. And then verse 45 to 47, he kind of combines the father and Moses. And now the people who were doing the accusing are being accused. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Which Moses was tied to the Scriptures, writing the the Torah. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? He's saying, no, you've missed the point of the Scripture, and ultimately the problem is you care more about what people think about you than you care about what God thinks about you. And that's the twist. And point number four, as we think about that witness of the Father, seek God above anything else. Seek God above anything else. And you can take some time and write that down. And when you're done, just kind of start going over to Exodus chapter 20, which if you've been around church for a while and you hear Exodus 20, you might know what's there. That's the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. And these religious leaders they loved the Ten Commandments, right? They knew all about it. I mean, this whole episode in John 5 is revolving around one of the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. And we, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, right? The, the Pharisees, they had come and they had taken, well, let's take that Fourth Commandment and let's come up with 39 different categories of work that you can't do on the Sabbath. I mean, if you think some of these, like, coronavirus regulations are a bit over the top these days, then you would not have liked the Pharisees. I mean, there was nothing that they loved to do more than take a rule and come up with all of these rules on top of it. These guys, they would say they loved the Ten Commandments, but Jesus is trying to show them, no, you've missed the whole point of the Ten Commandments. Because how do the Ten Commandments start? If you're there in Exodus 20, look at verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then here's commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. God's, Jesus basically saying, hey, the Ten Commandments are all about God, and you have made them all about you. God gave it to you as a way to honor him, and you've turned it into a way that you can get honor for yourselves. You've missed the whole point. They took God out of the picture and put themselves in the center. And now there probably aren't a lot of you in the room this morning that can really identify so much with the Pharisees and you probably didn't have 39 categories of things that you weren't going to do this morning. But that core of living more for what people think about you and seeking glory for yourself instead of seeking God and His glory, yeah, that's still the same fundamental issue for everybody walking this planet today. The question really comes back to, who are you living for? What's your life all about? And God's saying, it's meant to be about me. And with this final point, I want to try to sell you on that, not as like, oh man, that's a pretty strict thing. No, that's the best thing that there could possibly be. There is nothing better in this world than living for God. Just think about music for a moment. And just think about the last hundred years. And if you would say, what are most songs that have been written in the last 100 years about? You know, you hear on the radio, you'll probably say, well, some form of like love and 
and romance. That there is something good and beautiful about that, that connection of two people, a man and a woman in, in love that's worth singing about. Well, let me tell you, there's something way better than that. Knowing your Creator, being reconciled to God, having a right relationship with Him. There's nothing that could possibly be better in all of creation than that. Than knowing the one who created you, having a right relationship with the one who's given you everything you have in life, knowing the one that sent his son into the world to die on the cross for you, and on top of all that, realizing that the way to a right relationship with God isn't something that you have to go out and earn and and muscle up the strength for, that it is something that he is offering to give to you through Jesus Christ. There's no better news in the world than that. All this stuff we're saying about Jesus, that he rose again, that he's the son of God, that he's calling us to live for for him, it's not fake news. It's good news. That we can know him. We can have hope and an eternity and a future and it's all given to us through what he has done. There's nothing better than that. And, And so when we see Jesus saying, oh, you're living for yourselves and you're seeking glory from men instead of the glory that comes from God, That should break our hearts because we should say, man, no, what I want is the glory that comes from God. I want to know Him and have a right relationship with Him. Because someday, that's all that's really going to matter. Everybody in this room, someday you will stand before Christ. Are you ready for that day? Again, it's serious, but the good news is you can be ready. Jesus has done everything that is needed to prepare you for that day. All that's left is to put your faith in Him. And if you've done that, we have to remember, hey, every person you see at lunch today, everybody in your neighborhood, everybody at your office, they are going to stand before Jesus someday. And one of the reasons God has put us here is to help spread the good news so that they too can be ready for that day. Because ultimately, Jesus isn't on trial. He's the judge. But he's also the judge that came down into this earth, gave his life for you and for me. And so we can praise his name. We can put our faith in him. And we can leave here today, although this has been a very serious topic, we can leave here today with joy. And we can leave here today on a mission to spread that joy, to spread that good news to those around us. Let's pray together. God, it is a serious topic that we're talking about. And we want to have a right sense of gravity just thinking about standing before Jesus. We sang, He is holy, holy, holy. We sang, when He shall come with with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in Him be found. God, we also realize that there is nothing we can do on our own to prepare for that day. We aren't good enough, God. We don't have the power. But you've given us all of that through Christ. What a precious gift He is. And God, I hope that would come across clearly today. God, that people would see this is a beautiful thing we're talking about. He is the Lamb of God who gave His own life for us. God, I pray that everyone in this room would see that as precious, would see, God, that there is nothing more important than than living for Him, God. And even with so much going on in our world right now, Lord, that what we want to do is seek You first and Your kingdom and Your righteousness, and You'll take care of everything else, God. So help us to seek You, God. And I pray for open doors and opportunities to shine the light of Christ to those around us. God, our world needs hope. Our world needs direction. And the only true place we're going to find that is through the one that came, lived the perfect life, died on the cross, and rose again. God, 
Lift up his name through us, we pray. Amen.